Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Observe the title of the sermon today. Uh, We will be discussing uh, three deceptions of the sexual revolution. I wrote uh, homosexual revolution uh, just to make it clear what we were talking about so nobody would be caught off guard. Uh, My own kids are in here. I promise to be at least as discreet as the scriptures are. Um, And I hope you will not, like some profane people do, use my discretion to confuse my meaning as folks do with the scriptures. Um, But I cannot promise that your children will not have questions. So you might want to volunteer for the nursery if you are worried. Um, Let's go ahead and pray before we begin. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, We are uh, jumping into the middle of a book written to a church, a lot of perversion going on, and a lot of, uh, in the context of this passage, people defrauding one another, and these people were using the grace of God to cover up their sins, um, which, which it does, but that doesn't mean that grace is any way compatible with a life of sin. So 1 Corinthians 6, 8 through 11. <clears throat> but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God. This passage corrects three deceptions. First, our culture says that perversion is historical progress. But the Bible teaches that sanctification, holiness, is historical progress. Second, our culture says that tolerance determines your place in God's kingdom. The Bible says that repentance determines your place in God's kingdom. Lastly, our culture says that bodily urges determine your identity. But the Bible teaches that the gospel gives the believer their fundamental identity. So to the first lie um, is that perversion is the progress of history. Our politicians keep ignoring the Bible more and more in the name of progress. This passage reminds us that the overall flow of history is towards obedience in Jesus Christ, not away from it. Conservatives have approached the issue of same-sex marriage by pointing us to the uh, tradition of Western civilization, um, and they are pretty much right that marriage has always, in every place, been between a man and a woman. And the liberals respond, naturally, we have evolved past that understanding you think they'd grown wings. The problem with both these views 
is that they have no ground to stand on. Our national memory of stable marriages is not a gift from the Roman Empire. It is true that, ge- that generally Romans considered marriage between a man and a woman. But they did not have a biblical view of marriage. It was common for free men to watch strip shows in honor of the gods, to patronize prostitutes, uh, and to have homosexual relationships with slaves or boys. There were even some high-profile homosexual mirages. The beastly persecutor of the church, Nero, conducted marriage ceremonies with several different men, Um, And the thing that shocked the Romans was that sometimes he played the woman in the ceremony. Uh, He even had a marriage ceremony with a boy whom he had mutilated. And the thing that shocked the Romans was that he wasn't a slave boy. He was a freeborn, protected Roman citizen. Of course, the sexual revolution assures us that we're going to slam on the brakes right before we get to that point. I point out Rome's perversion to show that the Apostle Paul did not minister in 1950s Mayberry. He ministered in a nation that was perverse like ours. He knew what homosexuality was about, and he knew it wasn't pretty. The point is, our nation is not evolving on the issue of homosexuality, but is returning to an ancient evil, an evil that the Spirit overthrew through the faithful witness of the church. The blessing that our nation used to enjoy, where most children were raised by their biological parents, was a gift from Jesus Christ. And over the last 50 years, our nation has rejected that gift over and over and over again in as many ways as they can imagine. And because of that, it is all too common to find children who do not know which man will be living in their house, their mother's house next week, and whether or not he'll be a predator. By refusing to honor God's law, we have made it worse and worse for the most defenseless among us. And I, I cannot, words cannot describe God's anger towards politicians who will do everything they can to make sure families do not have incentive to stay together. That will defend pornography based on the First Amendment and, and prostitution and then wonder why sex trafficking is becoming an issue in our nation. Contrary to the changes we've seen in America and Europe, we see in this passage a microcosm of the flow of history. History is moving away from perversion and towards submission to Jesus Christ. Just as Paul said that these believers had done. Remember the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus Christ has been given all authority on earth and is bringing all nations into submission to himself. Discipleship is the flow of history until Jesus returns 
And that's how the Western world left the darkness of the Roman Empire. Just like every Christian is sanctified over the long run, this world is sanctified as time goes by. The, the spread of, of Christ's rule over the nations is presented in various ways in Scripture. Jesus focuses on the slow, exhaustive spread of the kingdom when he talks about leaven put in a huge pile of flour that goes to every bit of it in Matthew 13. He focuses on the humble beginnings of the kingdom when he, he pictures it as a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds that grows to fill, um, become a tree that can hold every type of bird, borrowing from Ezekiel 17's imagery, um, that is the church growing to embrace every nation. Daniel focuses on the kingdom's overthrow of the empires of the world as a rock comes from heaven, smashes the Roman Empire, and then grows into a mountain that fills the earth. St. John focuses on the final product of Jesus' kingdom when he describes a world-filling bride of Christ descending from heaven in Revelation 21. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 that he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Jesus depicts the spread of the kingdom as a band of thieves looting every valuable thing out of Satan's house in Matthew 12. Jesus tells us that hell has a kingdom in this world locked up with gates and that the church runs over those gates as it is being built. Those gates do not prevail against, that is, keep out the church. That's Matthew 16. Isaiah and John describe the kings of the earth bringing their glory into Christ's kingdom in Isaiah 60 and Revelation 21. The slow, gradual, authoritative, demon-binding, king-subduing, nation-teaching, world-filling growth of the kingdom is the flow of this era of history until Christ returns. Yes, there are major setbacks and apostasies. But the overall pattern is victory through suffering servanthood. That's how we've gone from a situation where all Christ's disciples could fit in one room to a situation where two billion people at least outwardly confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So how do we describe the current rebellion of Western civilization? Listen to Psalm 2 which we've already heard Paul quote in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derisions. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his anger. Our president, Congress, and Supreme Court are doing their best to shake off Christ's authority over them. And although we have to respect them, God says, you look like a bunch of idiots. Later on in verse 8, God turns to his son and says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. We're not saying that the government should listen to us because Christianity is the best of all religions. We are proclaiming that there is a true king that will not let the rebellion stand. Verse 10, Psalm 2. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. 
Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Contrary to popular opinion, it is to everyone's benefit, Christian and otherwise, when rulers serve the Lord and kiss his son, Jesus Christ. Again, our nation is swimming against the flow of history in rebellion to the true king of the world. The next lie that is repeated by our culture is that tolerance determines our place in God's kingdom. When really it is repentance, turning away from sin and toward Jesus, that determines our place in that kingdom. Verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The believers at Corinth thought that they had come to a clear understanding of God's grace. And they thought it allowed them to embrace sin and approve of brazen, unrepentant sinners. Earlier in chapter 5, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, it is actually reported that there is sexually immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. A man was sleeping with his stepmother, and they were proud that they had this understanding of God's grace that could make it okay. The sexual revolution believes one can be justified through tolerance, that any sin can be covered through tolerance. When they say tolerant, they don't mean hate the sin, love the sinner. They mean celebrate the sin, bake cakes for the sin, try your best to make sin look good. You can be a bloodthirsty doctor who makes his living murdering babies and selling their body parts. But since you celebrate sexual freedom, many Americans think you're good with God. The only thing that can damn a person in the sexual revolution is believing that anyone is damned because of their sexual sins. If you teach that homosexual and heterosexual sin is damnable, you'll quickly be told to go to hell. Paul shows us, on the other hand, that sins can only be covered by forsaking your sins and turning to Jesus Christ. Paul says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. No matter your past, you can be forgiven through the death of Christ. God forgave King David after using his political power to accumulate multiple wives and to take another man's wife and then to kill that man to cover up her pregnancy. Jesus said Paul uh, had been persecuting him as Paul persecuted the church when he was Saul. And that is why Paul identifies himself as the chief of sinners. Anyone can be forgiven who will turn from sins and trust in Jesus. You look at verse 9 and 10 He includes uh, sleeping around, worshiping the wrong God, adultery, homosexual sex, thievery, greed, getting drunk and high, vicious speech, even swindling. Like the revolutionaries, the church believes that the most audacious sins can be forgiven. 
The difference is their way is a lie and our way is the truth. The reason such great sinners can be forgiven is because a great price has been paid. God cannot overlook sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus had no sins of his own. He hung on a cross and died for our sins. We're not just saying people are okay. The justification that the Apostle Paul talks about here cost Jesus Christ his life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, will have eternal life. Jesus' death on the cross is the only way to both affirm the horror of all sin and to allow sinners to be welcomed into God's family. Jesus' death shows that our sins really are terrible enough to deserve hell. His resurrection shows that all who believe in him are truly forgiven. And yet, Paul says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Since the whole Bible is God's word, Jesus agrees with Paul on this. Listen to what Jesus says on the topic of lust. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. It doesn't matter if you lust towards the same or the opposite sex. That lust is enough to send you to hell forever. The only sexual desire that is is one properly directed towards one spouse of the opposite sex in marriage. Otherwise, if you embrace sin, you are embracing hell. Um, nevertheless, any, any sexual sin can be forgiven. The issue is either you love sin and hate Jesus, or you love Jesus and hate sin. It doesn't matter what the sin is. If you are choosing to embrace that sin, you are choosing to have no part in God's kingdom. You don't even need to have the sin conquered. You don't have to have gotten rid of those desires. But you can't be proud of it. Every gay pride parade is an I hate Jesus parade. They might as well put it on the banners. Every person that truly loves Jesus is openly ashamed of their sin. Whatever that might be, whether it's gossip or or heterosexual lust or whatever. Lastly, our culture says... That our sinful urges determine our identity. But the Bible teaches that the gospel gives the believer his or her fundamental identity. The Corinthians thought that grace that was offered in Jesus Christ gave them freedom to be who they already were. They thought Jesus' forgiveness gave their sinful lives a free pass. As we mentioned, the Corinthians had made peace with all sorts of sin. Go through the list again. Uh, Sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, men who practice homosexuality, thieves. Notice he doesn't say men who have are born with homosexual desires. He says men who practice homosexuality. Thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. 
Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean all your desires are straightened out. You, you cannot follow your heart, as Disney would say. And God's grace can become the ultimate excuse for embracing sin. And this was the mindset that says, God loves to forgive and I love to sin. Paul says that that mindset is headed for hell. The sexual revolution has attempted to make sinful desires fundamental to one's identity. You try to tell somebody committing homosexual acts that um, that that's a sin, and they're going to tell you, I've always felt this way. God made me this way. It's like, yeah, God made you in need of redemption, and I'm telling you, you should receive that redemption and turn from that sin. So, so many movies set up a situation where someone really, really wants something that they really, really shouldn't have. And um, it, it doesn't necessarily matter what it is. Maybe it's a woman who uh, is tired of being a mother. Maybe it's a boy who will set aside every good thing in his life to be in a relationship with a particular girl. And almost always the hero of the movie decides to be really selfish and go for what they want. In real life, they would have just ruined several people's lives, including their own. But Hollywood seldom tells the truth. The sexual revolution takes it to the point where they want you to feel bad for not doing whatever you want to do. Bruce Jenner is a hero, supposedly, for having the so-called courage to mutilate his body. We're told that the last thing a person should do is stay in an unfulfilling Marriage for the sake of the kids. They want want you to feel like you'll be untruthful to people if you put to death your sexual desires in order to love your spouse, spouse and be faithful to your children. Our culture of the sexual revolution loves to lie to us this way. But pay attention on the last day. Jesus Christ is going to say to some well done, good and faithful servant. You put to death homosexual desires in order to keep your vows to your wife and to raise your kids to love me. There's going to be a lot of those. A Christian must embrace his identity in Christ and resist the lie that his urges define him. Uh, The Corinthians did not understand that Jesus had not just saved them from the consequences of their sins, but had saved them from the wrath, uh, for, saved them from the wrath they, they deserve for their sin and from the power of sin over their lives. They knew they were, the sins they were tempted toward, and they thought that those urges were unchangeable or unbeatable. Many of these believers were living the same way or even worse than they had before they knew Jesus. And Paul fights the sin in these believers' lives by telling them who they are in Christ. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. He says that the way you are living is not who you are anymore. That identity has been washed away by your baptism. You've been set apart as holy and forgiven In the name of Jesus Christ, you've been given the Holy Spirit to start living by the Spirit and not in obedience to your flesh. 
He tells them who they are now. Believing the gospel is not just about believing that Jesus has covered over your sins. It's believing that he's Lord. It's believing that he's given you his Holy Spirit even when you don't feel like it. It's believing, believing the gospel is to believe that you have died with Jesus Christ and you've been raised with him to new life. That's Paul's typical way of arguing. We can turn to Romans 6. What shall we say then? Verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's a rhetorical question. Obviously, some of them did not know. They did not consider their old way of life dead. It says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It doesn't matter if you were born that way. What matters is that that old person died in your baptism. The gospel gives the believer his identity. You are now a new Person, You are now a son or daughter of God. You've been so closely joined to Jesus Christ that you died on the cross and you, raise, you were raised again as a new person. So you cannot go back to your old life. We can fight for each other in this way also by reminding each other of our true identity in Christ. If someone says, man, I've been struggling with lust towards other men. You say, I've been looking at things that I shouldn't. You can tell that person, you can ask them, have you confessed that sin to God? If they say yes, then you can tell them that you were forgiven because Jesus died for you. Not only that, but Jesus never lusted. He always loved others as brothers and sisters and not as objects. His life has been given to you. Now go live it. Somebody says, I was so impatient with my kids yesterday. They would not listen. And I just became so rude, almost to the point of being cruel with them. You can tell that person, man, I hate that. That's sad. But be thankful that you're forgiven in Christ. Not only that, but you have a Father in heaven who is always patient with you. You've been raised as his child. Now go be patient with those kids. Somebody says, I feel dirty because I've been asking, I've been asked to lie on forms at work and I've given in because I'm so afraid of losing my job. You can say, have you confessed that? Then you're forgiven. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He'll take care of you because he owns the fullness of the world. And remember, you haven't been given a spirit of fear. For a Christian to identify himself as a homosexual is to refuse to believe God's word about him. You might have had homosexual desires every single day of your life, but if you believe in Christ, that is not who you are. That is not what controls your decisions. That's who you used to be, That is the you that went and hung on the cross with Jesus. But Jesus says you have a new life. 
Paul said, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. That's hell. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. It's Galatians 6. God hates homosexual sin so much that he placed it upon his son and put him to death. That also shows us how much he loves homosexuals or people who practice that. I don't agree with that terminology. You're a child of God. He has given you his Holy Spirit, and you are no longer a slave to your body's desires. Jesus said, you can't serve God in money. And maybe we could say, you cannot be identified by Jesus and fornication. Either you will love the one and hate the other, or you will serve the one and despise the other. Furthermore, our culture is aiming to devour our young Christians by telling them that they know who they are by recognizing their deep urges. Satan is consuming Christian kids who've been brought up on this lie that your desires define you. I'm going to paint a picture based on what I have read from pastors who've counseled people uh, with homosexual desires uh, based on my own life. I feel like I can relate to those people who have given in. And based on what I've seen over and over around me, um, I know that if I were born 20 years later and if I didn't have um, the the strong presence of my grandfather in my life, um, I would have been a prime target. Um, I had a youth minister who... uh, is an amazing Christian leader, amazing uh, husband and father, and just because he didn't talk in a very manly way, people would tell him he must be gay. So if he's got to, he needs to stab his family in the back because he talks a certain way. It's stupid. But you can imagine a situation. There's a teenager who wants to follow Jesus, but he's heard his whole life within and without of the church, that people are gay and that's who they are. He might not understand that he has a real identity in Jesus Christ. Um, And that identity is at war with the lusts of his flesh. Then, maybe he has some insecurities about fitting in with men for whatever reason. Aside from that, he he just happens not to fit the bill of what other teenage boys consider manly and um, as if teenage boys were a good judge of what manly is. Um, And so maybe he doesn't like football or hunting. Maybe he likes poetry or singing. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's not unmanly, but he's been trained to think that way. Maybe he enjoys the things the girls talk about more than guys. He's around boys who are Christians. But they don't accept him and receive him as a fellow man, but they jokingly call him gay. And these same girls who are his friends have watched, uh, watched so many movies where the, the starlet has a gay best friend that they just think it'll be cool if, if he is too. He wishes so badly that he could switch lives with the quarterback on the football team, that he could be respected by the other boys. And that covetousness develops into lust towards that other young man. He knows the Bible, but he also knows that he wants men. He's caught up in the way the world thinks, that he assumes the Bible must be false and his sexual orientation must be real. 
Then he starts slowly coming out, and he hears you whisper, I knew it all along. And if you say that, you are affirming the lies of the sexual revolution. Maybe you you could have guessed that he would be tempted in this way. But if you get a chance to talk to him, if he opens up to you, you need to tell him that that is not who he is. That he's been washed and sanctified. He's been given a new life. We need to strengthen our kids growing up today. Even if they are at a a Christian school or home school, they are breathing the air of this culture. We have to let them know who they are in Christ. We have to affirm their identity in him, that they are forgiven, that they belong to Jesus. They have died to sin. They have died with Christ. And they have died to all those urges that are against God's word. We have to encourage them to choose that identity over believing the world when the world says that they are slaves to their lusts. So in summary, first, our nation is a sinful nation, not primarily because of homosexual mirage. We've murdered 55 million babies in 42 years. This American mindset that refuses to acknowledge Christ under the false pretense of secularism is not the way our world is headed, even though we keep trying to export it. Christianity is growing around the world. It is the spirit, as long as the spirit is in the world, the spirit who will one day make a new heavens and new earth, as long as that spirit is in the world, the spirit that will one day raise our bodies, as long as our spirit is in the world, the world cannot stay the same, even if there are various large scales, apostasies and rebellions. It doesn't have doesn't scare Jesus, though. He he laughs and he keeps pushing his kingdom on. We don't have to be ashamed to tell our leaders that Jesus Christ demands their obedience. If they won't listen, he'll prove it to them. And we just keep praying that he'll prove it to them before it's too late for their own sakes. Second, Paul says, though they know God's decree, this is Romans 1, 32, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It is not okay to approve what God condemns. If you believe what the Bible says, there is going to be a lot of hatred directed towards you by a lot of people in our culture. Because you will not, um, as Paul also talks about, approve of the things they do. Um, May we never bring that hatred upon ourselves by not being repentant and sorry for our own sins and, and humble. And, uh, but the true gospel is enough to get you crucified. Do not fear. Even if the world condemns you, it's better to be condemned by men and justified by God. It's better to be a child of God than anything in this world. Last, you are not, you are not your sinful desires. You have been washed The spirit of Jesus Christ has been poured out into you. You are no longer a slave of those sins which would lead you straight to an eternal hell. It doesn't matter what those sins are. You must consider yourself dead to sin. It's not that you'll have perfect control over those sins. 
but you will fight them with everything you have because you love God. He's your Father, and you have His Spirit. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe the truth of your word. Father, thank you for bringing your kingdom all the way over here to America, where we can know you because Jesus has purchased every tribe, tongue, and nation by his blood. Thank you that we no longer walk in darkness, but in your beautiful light. Father, help us to love sinners, but help us to be brave to declare that salvation is only in the holy name of your Son. If we've been playing games with your word, please forgive us and help us be faithful to you. Help us to know who we are in Jesus Christ. Help us to live this new life and encourage each other to pursue you and to forsake sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.